Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I am Lisa Elmers, and one of the things I'm trying to do right now is become a deacon. For those of you who don't know what a deacon is, it's basically a fancy Anglican way of saying one who serves. One of the ways I really love serving at Advent is as being a godly play storyteller, which is what I'm doing a lot of times. If you don't see me up here, I'm downstairs. And I have to say, this is my favorite time of year to be a godly play storyteller because for a really, really long time, 23 weeks since Pentecost, we've been in the same season. We've been in ordinary time. The kids call it the great green growing Sundays. And the kids love ordinary time, but around this time of year, they start to get little squirrely. They're ready for something new. They're, they're ready to, to hear a new story. And next week, we are starting a new year and a new season. We call it the season of purple. Yes, exciting. And we tell the children, we say, purple is a very serious color because something serious is about to happen. A king is about to be born. But he wasn't the kind of king that you would think of. He had no palace, he had no army, he had no fancy clothes to wear. And so I think this Sunday, on the the last eve of the year, we get to greet this king, and we get to ask ourselves, if he's not the kind of king that we would think of, what kind of king is he? And I think that there's something really telling about this being the passage that we get to describe what Christ's kingship is like, because it so amply reveals the ways that we are likely to misunderstand what kind of king Jesus is. Luckily for those of you who like to take notes, these misunderstandings fall into three different categories. Each of them start with a P, so excellent. So we are likely to misconceive Jesus' power as king, his privileges as king, and his place as king. Okay, so you guys ready to dive into this? Let's open up our Bibles. We're in Luke chapter 23. Cindy, of course, so beautifully read that for us earlier, and I managed not to cry this time, although that's pretty normal for me to cry when Cindy reads the scriptures. Luke 23, starting in verse... 35. So, we're, misun- we're likely to misunderstand how Jesus uses his power or what kingly power looks like. In this section, we have three different sort of breakouts of people who are misunderstanding Jesus' power. And in each case, we have the authorities, we have the Roman soldiers, and then we have the one criminal. And they are all telling Jesus Jesus, in order to show that you're king, what do you have to do? You have to save yourself. That's repeated three different times. Save yourself. So from on all registers, from the top of society to the lowest dregs, everybody understands that a king's greatest priority is going to be to preserve his own life and power. Certainly there's a logistical reason for this because Jesus was being accused of trying to set himself up as the the kingly ruler of this Jewish insurrection against Rome and he can't really do that if he's dead, right? 
but think that there is a deeper layer about Christ's identity that's being attacked in these, accus- in acu- in these accusals. So listen to what the people say. First, let him save himself if he is the Christ, his chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Does anybody hear kind of a familiar voice in these taunts? Back in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, we read about Jesus' temptation. And the voice of Satan, the accuser, is in these taunts. Remember, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Have something to eat. If you are the Son of God, show your dominion over the angels. If you are the Son of God, crown yourself king over all of the kingdoms of the world. These attacks were aimed at questioning and undermining Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And here at Calvary, we see a similar attack happening, right, against Jesus' kingship. But there, in the wilderness and here at Calvary, we see that Jesus completely does not take the bait. He doesn't rise to these bids. Because he knows that it comes with a stipulation to exercise power like this. What did, G- or what did um, Satan ask Jesus to do in order to have power on all of the kingdoms of the world? Bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me. Be a puppet king. Be a king like every other king in the world. And exercise your dominion, but really it's under my rule. So Jesus will not have power that's like that. Three times here. Jesus rejects the bid, just as three times in the, in the wilderness he rejected the bid. He will be a king, but he's not that kind of king. Now, maybe we can accept a king that's like this, who's meek and lowly and gentle and a kind king, but what do we do with a king who allows himself to be treated unjustly? Because that's what's happening to Jesus, right? It's not just that he's being beaten and bruised and reviled, but he's submitting to injustice. The claim against Jesus, the formal charge that was so cruelly scrawled in that plaque on that plaque above his head was that Jesus was king of the Jews. But there was never any illusion in the trial that Jesus went through that Herod or Pilate thought that that was true at all. They didn't crucify Jesus because they were trying to carry out some sense of justice. In fact, they were only crucifying him because they were afraid of the mob. They didn't want their own power to be taken away. They were afraid. So they were not trying to enact Jesus, but Jesus, or enact justice, but Jesus lets himself be killed as if they were. Why would he do that? The constant refrain from the crowd is that Jesus cannot be king because he cannot save himself, and yet... Friends, let's have the courage to look into the brightness of the mystery of what's happening here. It was in these very acts of submitting to injustice, these acts of self-abandonment, in which Jesus divested himself of the right to a fair trial, emptied himself of honor, emptied himself of power, that he became king. He became the kind of king that he is, the king foretold by the prophets. So it's like Jesus being this lamb led to the slaughter is the ultimate flex because that is when he's becoming king. 
that is when he is taking the shape of Isaiah's suffering servant, the one whose soul makes an offering for guilt. That is when he's taking the shape of Jeremiah's prophecy that we read this morning, when Jesus takes on the mantle of that special title, the Lord is our righteousness. That righteousness is visible here as Jesus lets himself be killed unjustly in order to bring the justice of God. Jesus' royal purpose was never to hold on to his own life. He had purposed from the beginning of time to be stricken for the transgressions of the people. So the rulers and the soldiers, the priests and the people, when they were trying to tear Jesus down, they were doing so because they thought that he was trying to lay claim to a power that was too great for him, but their mistake was in supposing that he wanted a power that was way too small. Jesus wasn't about to sit on some small earthly throne. As we read in Colossians this morning, he created every earthly throne, every dominion, every power. He was firstborn over everything that was made. And when he died and when he rose again, he became firstborn over even more than that. Firstborn over the dead. Firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent over the power of sin, Satan, and death itself. So, we really, really misjudged Jesus' power when we nailed this king to the cross. But we misjudged more than that. We also misunderstood what is due to Christ the king and how he relates to his own privilege. So let's go back to the text here. We're in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Here we have a charming little satire, a little tableau. What the soldiers are doing, obviously, is they're enacting, they're play-acting, a king being brought the spoils and the pleasures that are due to him. But, as N.T. Wright says, instead of a royal cupbearer, instead we have a, a, the Roman soldiers offering Christ the sour wine that poor people drank. Wright's translation, Wright translated all of the New Testament. His translation of verse 36 is sour wine is instead cheap wine. The soldiers are coming and offering Jesus the cheap wine that they think he deserves as the kind of king that he is. And as cruel as this is, I think there's kind of a poetic irony in it too. Because Jesus, when he was king on earth, he was the king of trash. He was king of the poor, the diseased, sinners. He ate with them. He drank their wine. And so even as before, when people thought they were taking Jesus' kingship away from him by mocking him, exactly in that moment, that is when they are giving him his kingship. Because this is Christ the king of all nations, all people, the defender of the down and out, declarer of the jubilee, patron of the poor, redeemer of the wicked, and he is coming into his kingdom drinking the cheap wine of his people. But there's even a deeper layer of identity here as there was before because Jesus is the kind of king that shows that he's king not in the taking of privileges, but in the giving of privileges. Or in another sense, 
not in the drinking of wine, but in the giving of wine. We all remember what Jesus said to his friends that last night when he had dinner with them. He broke the bread. He said it was his body. He poured the wine. He said it was his blood. And he said the pouring of his blood and the pouring of the wine was the making of a new covenant. In doing this, Jesus is declaring himself to be the God of the covenant. He's taking over authority and ministration. He's saying, we're going to have a new kind of relationship because the covenant is the way that God has always expressed his relationship with his people. Through his covenant, God promised all kinds of things. He promised to give land. He promised to give children. He promised to defend his people, to bring them out of slavery. He promised to give them the best way to live in the law. He promised to rule over them as a gracious king. And most importantly, he promised to bless them and to make them a blessing to all of the people of the world so that they could live at peace with him and with each other. Not to sound like a a downer, but there was kind of a problem with the covenant, though, which was that God could always hold up his end of the deal. He always did. He was always faithful. But we were never able to hold up our end of the deal. There was one stipulation in the covenant, and that stipulation was obedience. We listen to God's voice, and we do what he asked. We could never do it. Time and time again, Israel, God would reinstate the covenant with Israel, and they would very quickly just turn away to worship other things, live exactly as the nations around them were living. We couldn't be obedient. You know who could? Who could submit to the glorious will of God, being obedient on behalf of all mankind? Who could? As our, pa- as our passage in Colossians said, through submitting to God's will, reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by making peace through his blood on the cross. Jesus, of course. King Jesus. He is then the covenant king, maker of the covenant and keeper of the covenant on our behalf. In dying and rising, he secured privilege the privilege of the endless riches of the eternal life of God. And he shows himself king, not by hoarding that privilege, not by keeping it for himself, even though it's his due. Opening his hands and giving that to us. So, we misunderstood his power as king, his privilege as king, and of course, we were also wrong about what Jesus' place as king is. So let's return back to the text here. Verses 40 and 42, 40 through 42. We see that Jesus was flanked on all sides by misunderstanding, misinterpretation, but then here in verses 40 through 42, he meets at last with recognition and with reverence. The first criminal had railed against him, but then starting here, verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. The criminal does two different things. He knows who he is, and he knows who Jesus is. He knows that he is a sinner, and he is dying justly. And he knows that Jesus is king, and that he's bringing justice. Before, when I was talking about the covenant, I was linking it to the language of blood and of wine, but it's also linked in the Old Testament to the language of remembrance. Remembrance. Exodus 2, 23 through 25 is a really good example of this. Let me read that for you. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Remembrance of his covenant is what caused God to act on behalf of Israel and to bring them up out of slavery and into a good land. And it's that language of remembrance that's being activated here in this passage. Now, as I said, God acting on behalf of Israel looked like him delivering them from slavery and then bringing them to a good land. And that land, the promised land, has a long and storied history, and I don't have time to get into all of it now, but I just want to plant a little bit of a seed here by looking at a strange word from our passage that I have never understood before. And I'm very sad because Jesse Carlucci isn't here, but he helped me a lot to figure this out because Jesse knows Greek a lot better than I do, which is to say Jesse knows Greek. And I don't. Um, <laughs> but what Jesus says to the criminal is that he will see him and be with him in paradise. And syntactically, paradise in that sentence is linked to the previous sentence. So the criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says, today I'll be with you in paradise. So the idea of paradise and God's kingdom are linked somehow or overlapping. Um, and the word paradise that's used here is not very common at all. It's used three times in the New Testament, and it's used pretty sparingly in the Old Testament as well. But it appears very, very pointedly in the very beginning of Genesis, the first couple of chapters. What do you think it refers to? <gasps> The garden, that's right. Thank you, Jacob. The garden of Eden. The garden of Eden. That place where God used to walk with mankind before the time of our sin and separation. A lot of ways, in a lot of ways, the story of the Hebrew scriptures is a story about God inviting us back into lost communion with him. And many, many times, those places, those arrangements that God made are clothed in paradisal imagery. If you were here last week, we watched a video from the Bible Project where um, they sort of describe what is heaven, what is earth, how do these things overlap and interact. And Tim Mackey, who's one of the thinkers behind the Bible Project, has also talked about this idea of heaven on earth spots. Places where God has come to meet with his people. And again, these are, these are all sort of shaped around this paradisal imagery. The contours of Eden are visible in the oaks of Mamre where God greeted Abram. 
in the ever-living, never-burning shrub that he spoke to Moses to and told him his name. The shape of the garden is woven into the tabernacle with its pomegranates and its gilded almond blossoms and the blue sky veil of the tabernacle and its Ark of the Covenant with its gilded cherubim, like the two cherubim that guarded the way back into the garden by a, a fiery sword. The shape of the garden is visible in Canaan, the promised land, which is described as a garden on earth, a land of grapes and figs, milk and honey. And the crowning glory of David's royal court is Solomon's temple. If you read the descriptions there, it's carved all over with Edenic palm trees and wreathed lilies. These are the places where God intentionally came to be with his people. Places of blessing and abundance and fellowship with him that are untouched by our sin. And just as the Bible begins with a garden, it ends with a garden. A garden in the heavenly Jerusalem. Of the two other incidents of the word paradise in the New Testament, one of them is in John's Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of God. That ultimate heaven-on-earth spot where God himself comes and reigns with love, mercy, and justice. He is our God, and we are his people. And I don't have any idea how this is going to work exactly, when or where Jesus will bring us there, or he will, or he will bring there to us. But I do know one thing, which is that when Jesus walked around on earth... He was paradise on earth because he was God with the people. I love the tender expression of Jesus toward the criminal when he welcomes him in. As a citizen of his kingdom, he says, Today you will be with me. So, friends, behold your king, righteous and having salvation. He is the king who brings justice by suffering injustice. He is the king who conquers by submitting and surrendering. He offers you his life, his blood, and a place alongside him in paradise. Today, you can choose to do whatever you want with this king. Will you choose to reject him? Because maybe he's not the king you imagined, the king you wanted. He's not necessarily going to be king of your political party or your agendas. Maybe you'll reject him because he doesn't promise to keep you from suffering, from persecution, misunderstanding, death. He didn't protect himself from those things. Maybe you'll choose to offer him cheap wine the cheapest wine you have, fake adoration. Maybe you say that he's king with your lips, but he's not king of your heart. Or you can do the one thing that you need to do that's necessary for him to really be your king, which is believe in him 
and trust him, just like the thief did. Today, you choose. You choose whether he's your king. And I would just pray, if any of you have not invited Jesus to be king of your heart, you can do that this morning. And this is not necessarily just some belief that you muster up because it is the Spirit's job to keep us awake to the things of God. So if you desire, ask the Spirit to help you to make Jesus king of your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us who you are. Help us to believe in you and submit to you. We are not worthy, Lord, but we will receive from you gladly. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.